For our sermon text then for today, we can turn to Genesis chapter 3. We'll be reading two verses, Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. This is following from what we saw last week, where Adam and the woman had sinned against God by eating of the forbidden fruit, and they had fled from the presence of God, and God called out to them and called them to account and spoke to the man and then to the woman. And now he begins to speak, now first to the serpent. So starting in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray for God's blessing upon his word. Lord God, we thank you for revealing to us your salvation. We thank you for revealing to us your will for the salvation of sinners. We pray that you would indeed give us joy and confidence through the good news of Jesus Christ, that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word to give us understanding, to give us a benefit from that. We pray that you would give us uh, conviction from your word and to build us up in holiness and comfort. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So God created man and he made him good. Initially, uh, the man and the woman we were righteous. They uh, were pleasing in God's sight. They were blessed abundantly. And yet, as we saw, they had sinned against God. They had uh, rebelled against their maker. God's creatures were now in revolt against him. Uh, The serpent, the woman, and the man were aligned now in sin and rebellion. The gifts that God had given to them, the the wisdom to the serpent and the many gifts to uh, those who were made in God's image, the man and the woman, these gifts now were being co-opted by uh, sin, and their descendants now would follow them in their wickedness. Mankind deserved judgment in the fullest sense, for they had defied the one who had given them life, and indeed all things. But God would not let evil triumph. Uh, they, they would not get away with their rebellion. He would not let his uh, creation uh, be destroyed and corrupted indefinitely by this rebellion, but neither would he leave mankind to its doom. He did not leave all to their rebellion. The first promise that God gave of salvation, of redemption, can be found here in these verses in his words to the serpent. Uh, Although mankind did not deserve help, only deserved his wrath and judgment, yet God was quick to offer a promise of salvation and a Savior. 
even before he finally pronounces the fact that they will die, uh, he describes how he will indeed intervene in the situation and save a people. Even though the covenant of works had been broken, that was the covenant made in chapter 2, a covenant of life indeed that was conditioned on perfect and perpetual perpetual obedience, um, which was good while it lasted and yet was broken here by that sin. They had no provisions for salvation because man originally did not need salvation. He was good. There was no need for atonement or forgiveness. But that, so that covenant now was broken, and now the threats and judgments of that covenant were in force. But now God made here a second covenant, which we call the covenant of grace. He made this covenant, this redemptive covenant, to deliver his elect from sin and misery. In the covenant of grace, God provides and offers to sinners a redeemer, and life and salvation by him, requiring faith as the condition to to come under his headship and protection, to uh, have part with this Redeemer. And so we might even see this covenant of grace summarized in John 3.16, that God loved the world in such a way that he sent his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He promises, in fact, to bring his elect to faith so that they might have this salvation, that he will deliver them from the devil and death. He will see to it that they be saved. And so in this covenant of grace, sinners are saved by God to be his people, that they might enjoy fellowship with him once again, and that they might then serve him in holiness and righteousness forever. That's big picture. That's the covenant of grace. And you might say then, well, how do you see that in these verses? (laughs) We're going to get to that. But this is what's being introduced here in seed form, in in a brief uh, form, something that's going to be expanded upon throughout the rest of Scripture, that God now is going to bring fallen man back into covenant with him, now on new terms, uh, that of redemptive grace through a Redeemer. And so while the covenant of grace is progressively revealed in greater fullness throughout Scripture, we find the essentials here in these verses. In particular, we find that God promises three things. The judgment of the serpent, the intervention of grace, and the triumph of the Redeemer. The judgment of the serpent, the intervention of grace, and the triumph of the Redeemer. And so first, let's look at verse 14 the judgment of the serpent. Uh, He begins by speaking to the serpent. There's a a great symmetry here in uh, Genesis 3. You know, first it talks about the serpent who led astray the woman, who then spoke to the man who sinned, and then God calls out to the man, and then he blames the woman, and the woman blames the serpent, and now he's going to speak to the serpent, and then he'll speak uh, to the woman, then he'll speak to the man. And we're going back and forth here between these three uh, figures. And so he speaks here in these verses to the serpent, and he he brings uh, the conviction of the serpent. First he says, because you have done this. Well, because he's done what? Well, that refers to the verse right before, where the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Oh, that was wrong for the serpent to do. It didn't absolve the woman, but it was wrong for the serpent to lead astray the woman by lying, by deceiving her to sin against God. 
Uh, He is called a murderer for this, for he brought uh, her uh, into death. Uh, He was called a liar from the beginning, from this uh, occasion. And so because he has done this and therefore rebelled against God, he is cursed. Uh, Cursed above all livestock, that is, you know, in distinction from all livestock and all beasts of the field, uh, he will be cursed. Cursed are you. Uh, On your belly you shall go. Dust shall you eat. Uh, He will be cast down and humiliated. Now, that is the curse. There's a conviction, you know, what he did wrong. There's the curse that is pronounced here. There is also then the convict. Who is he speaking to? Uh, Does this, you know, who is the one being cursed? Uh, Because it's it's called a serpent, um, but we know that serpents don't usually speak. They don't usually speak to me, at least. Uh, that there's something a little bit more going on here than an ordinary snake. Uh, and, and in fact, the, the scripture here teaches this particular, sorry, treats this particular snake and the devil as one. Uh, it's going to call that ancient serpent Satan and the devil himself. That this is the devil, one way or another, uh, working through this serpent to tempt the woman. Uh, we don't know exactly how that happened, but we know, you know, perhaps the devil could have possessed a literal snake or, or appeared in the form of a snake. But in any case, the Bible speaks of the serpent as the devil, and he, in fact, is being cursed. And so the lowliness of the snake, which indeed does crawl on its belly and uh, licks the dust and is lowly uh, among all the animals and the beasts, That is a sign of the curse upon the devil. Now, it could be that the snake, uh, as a creature, a biological creature, perhaps did originally have legs or somehow did not uh, live in the way that it lives now. They're certainly uh, quite plausible. God created all things. He could create them however he wanted and change them however he wanted to. And this change could have been implemented here um, as the instrument that the devil used, and as a symbol of the curse upon the devil. But the main point is the doom of the devil, for he is the one who spoke to the woman who did this thing. And so when you, sne- when you see a snake and its lowly position, uh, in fact, uh, we, were on a, we went hiking on Monday and we, we caught, found a snake and uh, caught it and you know, looked at it real up close, uh, when you see a snake, it was, it was a very small and harmless one in this case, you don't have to be unnecessarily cruel to the snake and you know, beat it for tempting the woman. But when you see a snake, remember how like a snake the devil is crafty. How like a snake the devil has venom and is dangerous, or like some snakes. How like a snake he has been disgraced and cast down and in fact, is doomed. That the devil will be defeated, he will be cast down to the dust. The curse on the serpent here in verse 14 is a promise of the defeat of the devil and his forces. As we might say, they will bite the dust. That type of expression is used for the defeat of God's enemies in Scripture. In Psalm 72, speaking of the triumph of the king, says that may the desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Or Micah 7, uh, the triumph of God's people over their enemies, it says, 
The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. So what should we learn from this? Learn that the devil will not get away with his rebellion. God did not spare the angels who sinned, and certainly not this one. His efforts are in vain. The great dragon, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, he may fight and rage as he will, but he is doomed to defeat, even in history and especially in the final judgment, where he will be cast into the lake of fire. The devil is doomed. Learn also that sin is folly. What did the serpent gain from his rebellion? Nothing but a curse. A sin leads to disgrace, to condemnation. It leads to humiliation. Those who wait upon the Lord will not be put to shame, but those who continue in rebellion against the Lord will be put to shame. It leads to misery. You may have great gifts like the serpent, you know, the craftiest, the wisest of all the beasts of the field, being wise and eloquent, but despite great gifts, without the fear of the Lord, this wisdom becomes skillful folly, and you get really good at being really foolish. And this was what the devil did. And so renounce the devil. Reject his ways of sin don't have anything to do with it. That path leads to a humiliating overthrow. Rebellion will be judged, and any good that he promises is a lie. So turn away from evil and do not listen to his lies. Nevertheless, the judgment of the devil in itself might not give that much comfort. Why? Well, because mankind joined the devil, and he likewise rebelled against God. And so would perish with him, if that's all that we heard. The covenant of works that God had voluntarily made with man had been broken by man, and its sentence hung over its violators. It was not necessary that God would extend grace to sinners. Salvation could only be offered and made known by another special message from the Creator. Creation indeed testified to God's goodness, but a goodness that man had rejected. It testified to God's glory and righteousness, which man had fallen short of. Testified to man's obligation to obey him, which he had not done, which he had done indeed the opposite. And so he would, man would need a new message, another message, one of grace. But indeed, God continued to speak. And so let's look at verse 15. The second promise that we find is the intervention of grace. Let's just look at the first half of verse 15. God says again to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Verse 15 here is the first promise of salvation offered unto sinners. The first revelation of his will to save those who were lost. In the first half of the verse, we find that God says he will sovereignly intervene to save sinners. He doesn't start out by saying, Adam and Eve, you need to do this to work your way back into my favor. He doesn't begin with an exhortation, with with more law. He says what he will do. I will put, not work really hard to put enmity between you and the serpent, but I will put enmity 
between you, the serpent, and the woman. Now, you might wonder, how is enmity a good thing? Uh, enmity is the same word as enemy. You know, it's a different form of the same word. He's going to make them enemies. He's going to make the serpent and the woman enemies. He's going to place this enmity, this strife between them. And most of our experience of enemies and strife is not good. And so you might wonder, how is this? Uh, why are you calling this the first promise of, of redemption? But the promise is a good thing because it implies redemption. The woman had aligned herself with the serpent and her enmity was with God. But now the enmity was going to be between her and the serpent, putting her on the side of God. She had placed enmity between herself and God by following the serpent. But now God would sovereignly intervene. He would put something there that had not yet existed. Uh, He would put enmity between the serpent and the woman, breaking their alliance, placing the woman on his side, on God's side. Now, the woman here refers to Eve because that's her name thus far in the narrative. She hasn't been named Eve yet. We call her Eve because it helps us understand who, she is, who we're talking about. But she's going to be named Eve in response to what's said here. Um, Adam, in fact, expresses faith in God's promises by naming her Eve, the mother of all living, uh, that uh, the woman's offspring uh, would be those redeemed from death. But at this point, the woman is, is what Adam had named her. So the woman, most naturally here, refers to the woman that was deceived by the serpent, to Eve herself. Um, the woman, rather than the man, is probably mentioned because it was the woman who was deceived by the serpent. And he's speaking to the serpent. That woman that you deceived, you're not going to get her. I'm going to put enmity between you and her. <clears throat> and he said that God said that he would put this enmity not only between the woman and the serpent, but between the woman's offspring and the serpent's offspring. That's, again, why she would be called Eve, uh, mother of the living. Since this promise is also for her offspring, it's a multi-generational promise of redemption. It's not a one-time deal. It's going to be true throughout the history of the world, that there will be two groups. There will be one in rebellion against God, like the serpent, and one in covenant with God, redeemed, like the woman. Eve would raise up her children, then, as heirs of this promise, although we will find that Cain fell away, apostatized, proving to be one of the evil one. And so there's, there's two groups, the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. The serpent's offspring is not necessarily biological, uh, but it's referring to those who take after the serpent, who uh, manifest his character. Um, the New Testament speaks of this. Jesus uh, speaks of, uh, in John eight forty four that you are of your father the devil, you are like him, you follow his ways. Or 1 John 3 Speaking of of Cain himself being of the evil one, because he was a murderer like the evil one. Apart from God's grace, we are uh, blinded and kept in fear and bondage by the devil. Um, Our own natures being corrupt uh, and uh, corrupting one another imitating his ways. This is also what is called simply the world. 
meaning the fallen world, the system that has gone into rebellion against God. There is that group, and we would include in that as well the devil's uh, angelic followers, those who had also sinned, like him, the demons. There is the serpent and his offspring, and then there is uh, the woman's offspring, um, those who are the saints. And as we will find, this refers also to their head, Jesus Christ. They are the elect in Christ, those whom God brings to himself. Now, we find this enmity between these two groups throughout Scripture. The world, the flesh, and the devil wage war upon Christ and his church. The Israelites knew this enmity well, encountering enemies in Pharaoh, in the Canaanites, in the Philistines, and even some in their own midst who fell away and would oppress God's people. Proverbs would note this dichotomy of the righteous and the wicked. I would say an unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, but one whose way is straight is an abomination to the wicked. The Apostle Paul knew of this distinction when he urged the church to be a holy people, saying, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Jesus knew of this enmity when he told his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. There is enmity. You are no longer part of that group. Revelation 12 recounts how that ancient serpent continued to, to seek to destroy Christ, to wage war against the woman and the rest of her offspring, both Christ being her offspring and, and the rest of believers being her offspring. The Psalms are acutely aware of this conflict. The laments and the imprecatory Psalms call out for God's help in the midst of it, siding with God and, and against his enemies. These Psalms do not name individuals, and so they're conditional in how they apply. They apply to those who um, continue in these ways of rebellion, and we don't know who the seed of the serpent necessarily is, and so they're conditional, and we desire the repentance of sinners. Uh, But we do pray and sing these psalms as we affirm our place on God's side. We identify with him and his ways, and we seek God's triumph over the serpent and his offspring, over the world and the flesh and the devil, knowing that deliverance only comes from God, that the deliverance of his elect from them will need to come from him. Now look again at verse 15. Another thing to note, notice that God does not place enmity between the body and the soul, or between the visible and invisible realms, or between religion and culture. Um, Other worldviews and religions will place the enmity, place the antithesis in the wrong places, you know, um, and and make a a false uh, battle. But God put enmity between the serpent and the woman, In the midst of this earth, there are two peoples, two cities, two ways that are contrary to one another, uh, known as the the flesh and the spirit, uh, or the the fruit of the spirit and the works of the flesh. These two sides live in the same world. 
Now, sometimes this conflict is moderated by God's common grace. He uh, restrains the wickedness of evildoers, and so even those who are not regenerate will want good food at the grocery store and will indeed want certain things that we desire as well, but that's because they're starting to play on our terms due to God's common grace, and we can work with them and and indeed uh, appreciate that. But there remains a struggle between the serpent and Christ in every field of human endeavor. Are things going to be done uh, in accordance with God's ways or in rebellion to him? The solution is not to retreat from society or to compromise with rebellion, but you are called to be faithful and to witness in the midst of the earth, having been set apart by his grace. So God gives his promise to save sinners. He's going to sovereignly intervene to put enmity between the serpent and the woman, the serpent that had led her into sin, to break their alliance, to place the woman on his side, to create a new people distinct from the serpent's offspring. That would be the woman's offspring. And throughout the generations, he would save and deliver a people unto himself. And so avail yourself of this salvation. Cast yourself upon God's mercy. Call out to him for your deliverance from the world and the flesh and the devil that seek your destruction. He alone can save. He alone can save you. Salvation cannot be earned or achieved. It is of God. He would do it, and he does it today. And so receive and rest upon his provision, his provision of salvation. Secondly, as those who have been brought out of darkness through faith, uh, do not long for the darkness. Do you feel that longing rising up within you at times? That kind of sympathy for the other side and for their ways? No, make no treaty. Make no peace with sin. Strive against the forces of darkness. As Paul says, destroy every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Do not love the world. As the Apostle John wrote, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. James, in his epistle, exhorted the saints on the basis of the enmity between God and the world to forsake worldly passions and malice and covetousness, which was causing divisiveness among the church, saying, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There are two sides, and so do not sympathize and join in with the ways of the wicked one. Uh, Do not make yourself an enemy of God through friendship with the fallen world that is in rebellion against him. And so abstain, instead of loving the world, that is, the fallen world, the things of the world like lust and pride, instead of that, abstain from sinful passions, resist the devil, endure without flinching the enticements and the threats of the world. They'll do both, carrot and stick. You know, oh, you want this? Yes, you do. Oh, and if you don't, you are a bigot. You are, uh, you know, uh, self-righteous. You know, the threats as well as enticements. Abstain from these things. 
Have you indeed taken refuge in the Lord? And then gratefully stand by him and don't waver from his side. Hold fast to Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, and fight the good fight of faith. Elder Stahl mentioned of this in the Sunday school lesson earlier. We have a conflict each one of us is involved in to, to struggle against uh, sin and the devil and the world, to seek after holiness and the ways of God. You have put on the uniform of Jesus Christ. You have been baptized into Christ. And so now follow your captain. Do not desert his colors. Why? Well, he is going to lead his followers to victory and peace. And finally, you know, notice, before we go on to the last part of this verse, notice that from the beginning, the covenant of grace has included the children of believers. He was going to save the woman and her offspring. Although apostasy has always been a potential reality. Notice that, as we'll find out, Cain and Abel both uh, grew up uh, sacrificing to God. They both offer an offering to the Lord. They were both heirs of promise. But Cain was of the evil one and did not offer a sacrifice in faith like Abel. And indeed, enmity appeared between them. And Cain killed Abel. And yet, even though Abel was killed, Seth was born, and the church endured. The church shall endure from generation to generation by God's grace. And so, raise up your children to embrace the promise sealed to them in baptism and praying for God's grace upon them. So, the first half of verse 15 speaks of how God would save a people. The second half speaks of the triumph of the Redeemer. It speaks of how God would save this people. He will save this people, and now we get to how he will save this people. As he says then, He shall bruise your head, speaking again to the serpent. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, he here refers to, well, he doesn't refer to the woman. That might be obvious, but if you looked at the Latin Vulgate that the uh, Roman Catholic Church uh, had used for a long time, um, it says she, as if, you know, the woman will crush the head of the serpent, which they apply then to Mary. If you see imagery of Mary stomping on the serpent's head, that's where that comes from. But it's a masculine pronoun, uh, he. Not only that, but the verbs as well. Uh, indicate that it's a masculine subject or object. And so it is he who will crush the head of the serpent. And uh, also the he refers to a particular person who would represent the rest of the woman's offspring. And now uh, offspring, the woman's offspring, is also a, uh, a masculine singular noun, although it can be a collective noun. So, you know, something can be grammatically singular, but refer to a, a group. You know, a crowd is singular, but it refers to a group. Uh, offspring here is like that, so he most naturally refers to the woman's offspring. But uh, it, it is a he who is going to do it, and an individual who is compared to the serpent. If you look at verse 15, there is the serpent and the woman contrasted, both individuals. There is his offspring and her offspring, we know the serpent's offspring is a group, um, and so likewise the woman's offspring, the people of God. But in the final parallel, it is the woman's offspring and the serpent that is contrasted. And so now we're back to two individuals. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of his people, who indeed embodies them as their head. 
And now these two, the Lord Jesus Christ and the devil, would attack each other. The serpent would strike at his heel. And we know that he indeed suffered. The Lord Jesus Christ died, only then to rise again. But he would strike and bruise and crush the serpent's head, a much more mortal blow. And so God here promises the means of salvation through a redeemer, through a champion, through a victor who would indeed uh, conquer their mortal enemy now, the one that they have enmity with. Not only shall they be separated from the devil, but the devil will be defeated. And now that is good news because they're not with him and they will be saved by one who will arise from the woman's offspring. This promise is going to be a major theme of Genesis and the whole scripture. The Old Testament saints looked forward to the coming of this Messiah. The New Testament saints now are saved by faith in the one who has come. And Jesus fulfilled this promise by crushing the head of the devil by his redemptive work. Hebrews 2 speaks of how, you know, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. First John speaks of how the reason he appeared was to destroy the work of the devil and to bring us out of the ways of sin that he had uh, encouraged. And so the triumph of Christ over the devil is our redemption. He breaks the power of Satan so that he might now plunder his house, redeem the captives to bring them out. As uh, Matthew 12 says, Jesus says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. And so God defangs the devil. He takes away his power, strips him of his power through his death by taking upon himself the curse for sin, raising us up to new life so that the devil has no hold over us and is able to plunder his house and bring sinners from all over the world to salvation. And then additionally, by virtue of our union with Christ, you and I rule and triumph with Christ. We have overcome the evil one. Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That we participate in this victory. That we can triumph over sin and Satan, not on our own power, but through Jesus Christ. As Revelation 12 says, They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. In fact, let me briefly describe what we saw in Revelation 12. Revelation uses a lot of interesting imagery. I read that for a New Testament reading. But let me just briefly summarize what we see there. In Revelation 12, uh, it's a book of visions, and we see a vision in the sky. There's a woman and a dragon with imagery indicating that they symbolize uh, the church and uh, the devil. Uh, The church, uh, particularly the Old Testament church, is in birth pains, is is in labor, and uh, the the woman gives birth to a child, a male child, one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Hmm, I wonder who that is. Uh, That is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, who then ascends up to heaven and to the throne of the Father. And he 
is not taken by the devil's hostility, though he awaited to, to crush him. And then after the ascension, having ascended on high, all of this chapter flows in a, in a narrative um, from one piece to another, within this chapter at least. And so after that ascension, Michael and his angels wage war and throw down the ancient serpent and his angels to the earth. Again, the vision was in the sky. Now they're, uh, uh, he's on the earth. And so there's a proclamation of the triumph of Christ and the saints over their adversary, that he has been cast down, that there has been victory over him through the work of Jesus Christ. But also a warning that he knows his time is short, that he has suffered a great defeat, and now he is especially desperate. He unsuccessfully pursues the woman or the church and then goes off to make war on the rest of her offspring. So there's one of her offspring, Jesus Christ the male child who shall rule over the nations, but the rest of the offspring. And who are those? Well, it actually says who the rest of the offspring are on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So the devil has been defeated and is waging a desperate last-ditch effort to oppose the church of Jesus Christ. But Christ is reigning and extending his reign and will in the end cast the serpent and his followers into the lake of fire and bring his saints into the perfected and eternal kingdom of glory. And, of course, that's going beyond chapter 12 of Revelation, uh, even to the end. And so, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. A very simple, short statement that's going to be expanded upon throughout the rest of Scripture. God would raise up one who would be the offspring of the woman, who would partake of our flesh and blood, who would be born, indeed, in Bethlehem to be our king, our priest, our prophet, to represent the elect, to be our head, who would himself overcome our mortal foe and be the means of your salvation. This offspring of the woman would be none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, come into the world for your salvation, that he might bear our sins and redeem us from sin and the curse. And so receive and rest upon him. He is your deliverer. He is your glory. He pays the debt of his people, releases them from bondage. He drowns the devil and his host like Pharaoh was drowned so long ago. He breaks the power of sin and destroys the works of the devil. The serpent had the power of death, but Jesus stripped him of it. The accuser of the brethren have been cast down. If God is for us, who can be against us? Jesus Christ himself is interceding for you. Therefore, plead the sacrifice of Christ before his bar of judgment. Plead his resurrection before the terrors of death. He is your hope and deliverer. In Christ, you may boldly say, O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is your sting? In Christ, you in fact overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. That you participate in this triumph through union with Christ, you are able now to stand fast in the conflict which has not gone away in this life, but you can engage in it confident of victory. On your own, you are a poor, weak creature that was born into sin and depravity and unable to resist the devil, as the, that hymn, Mighty Fortresses Our God, says. You know, on earth is not his equal, but there is one who is more than his equal, who has triumphed and overcome him. Jesus Christ. And so, in Christ, as a member of Christ, struggle against sin, struggle against temptation, 
putting to death the deeds of the flesh, knowing that by his grace sin has no dominion over you. The promise of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ is your only hope of salvation, your only chance at survival and at glory. Apart from that, you remain a prisoner of the domain of darkness, forging, in fact, your own chains. So embrace the promise, follow the king, your king, and your champion to victory. So the devil shall be defeated. He shall be judged. He and his forces will bite the dust. God in his mercy and grace intervenes to save sinners. He redeems a people, places enmity between them and the serpent. By God's grace, we participate in that. This is the church of Jesus Christ. We ought to embrace and give thanks for that work of God. And furthermore, he has raised up an offspring of the woman, his own son, who partook of our flesh and blood to deliver us and to defeat our ancient foe. He defeats the dragon, he saves his bride, the church, and will dwell with her in glory. So do not neglect this covenant of grace, this great salvation. Do not let it pass you by. Take hold of the promises of God and give thanks. Rejoice in your King, the victorious Savior, and follow him even to the death. To him be glory forever. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your mercy that you showed us, that though we were sinners, though we fled from your presence, though we would mislead and blame others and even blame you, being at enmity with you, that you have had mercy upon us, that in our need and in our rebellion, you have sent your Son to die for our sins, that you have redeemed us from Satan's power and might and brought us into your presence, to your household, uh, that we might triumph and have life. We pray that you would uh, continue this grace towards us according to your promise, and not only to us, but to all peoples. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.